1: Good morning, and welcome to the morning briefing for Friday, December fifteenth, twenty seventeen. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer. And coming up on today's show, we'll be joined live in studio by the Veterans of Foreign Wars Director of National Veteran Service, Ryan Galucci. We'll go over the Decision Ready Claims process and clear up some confusion over exactly what service organizations like the VFW can do for you in regards to it after a, uh, well, I guess maybe an inaccurate email from the VA went out to members recently. Well, to veterans recently. Later, Navy veteran James Spears will join us. James is the founder of several veteran-related Facebook groups boasting six digits in memberships. We're going to talk to him about his career and what led him to creating these social media meeting spaces for his fellow vets. All that and more is coming up on today's Morning Briefing. Again, it's Friday. Everybody's happy about that. The weekend is almost here, and I don't think there's anybody happier about it than Super Producer Jake Hughes. Jake, good morning. How much are you looking forward to the weekend? Very, very much so. It's going to be a fun weekend. This one, uh, for me... Is going to be a weekend of relaxation. I've been. Is your wife finally back? Yes, she. uh, Well, she. I. When she gets home uh, on Thursday nights, because she's been traveling basically Monday through Thursday for most of the last like two plus months, she'll get back and she doesn't want to wake me up because she knows I have to get up early. So I come downstairs and she sleeps on the couch. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. um, Well, also the dog is down there and he's very warm and uh, that she Ah. likes that because she's she's always cold. And I don't know why it seems to be based along gender lines, but (laughs) there are so many women who are constantly freezing. I worked with a woman in New York in a newsroom that was about 73 degrees or so year round 73, 75 degrees, no matter whether it was the summer, the winter time, she would not only have a flannel blanket that she would put over her legs. She had a space heater she would put under her desk. What? Yeah. 73 degrees in the office space (laughs) heater when she brought it in i was like what is that she told me i went oh my goodness you're that cold she said yes i'm that cold (laughs) there's nothing i can do about it i'm sorry so what are your plans for the weekend anything anything big i know you got your new gaming rig coming right or is it already there
0: uh it's gonna be in the mail on monday but i'm already uh i already got the the old one posted up on ebay so we're trying to get it sold and uh really my plans for this weekend are just to relax hang out with my dog i got uh I got my my weekly nerd meeting every Saturday night.
1: They have a meeting. Why haven't I been invited to the nerd meeting? No, it's the nerd meeting is we we play <laughs> we play d and d. oh, okay. That's a level of nerd that I haven't been at for quite a while. I yeah. played Dungeons and Dragons at summer camp, one summer at Camp Woodstock in Connecticut. It was a YMCA camp, and we had a counselor who was a big D&D fan, so at night, we would play Dungeons & Dragons throughout the, I don't know, two weeks or however long I was there, and enjoyed the heck out of it, and then never played it again.
0: Yeah, the first time, I never used to play it, but I remember one time I was on CQ uh, on duty at Fort Hood, and a bunch of the guys were in the conference room playing D&D, and I went in there to watch them, and I felt like uh, Jane Goodall, the gorillas in the mist lady, <laughs> like I'm observing them in their natural habitat. <laughs> But yeah, we have fun. It's it's actually not Dungeons and Dragons. It's based on Fallout, the video game.
1: Oh, the video game series that I, I very much enjoy as I am a gamer myself. That's the kind of nerd I am. That science fiction, history, yeah. those are my nerdly pursuits, I suppose you could say. Um, Fallout, for those who don't know, is a video game series set in a alternate future, essentially. It is a post-apocalyptic United States. However, it's a post-apocalyptic United States wherein uh things had changed where nuclear power became like everybody had nuclear yeah. power in their homes, there their cars, powered cars. Cars were fusion powered and everything. And then nuclear war broke out between the United States and China, essentially China China essentially uh wiped out the population except for people that were able to get into these vaults that people paid for. Maybe that's a bit of an indictment of uh indictment of capitalism or something, but yeah, that's pretty cool that you're doing that. Also pretty cool is what we have coming up today. We have the VFW is going to be live in studio. So there was this email that went out and we have it and we're going to read it for you later on. This email about what exactly the VSOs can do for you in regards to some of the uh, the VA services that there are uh, and some questions over how accurate that is, what the VSOs can and cannot do. Well, Ryan Gallucci, He is the National Services Director for the VFW, and he is going to be here with us to tell us all about that good stuff. And I'm absolutely looking forward to clearing up a lot of that information for you. But essentially, I guess the issue is, and we're going to have Ryan clear this up again, that the VA sent out this email. I don't think that I got it, which is odd. I think that I should, saying that uh, there are things that the VSOs can do to help you file various types of claims, Well, apparently some of those claims, maybe the VSOs, that's not what they're supposed to do or not what they claim that they're going to do. And this is a big issue and a timely one because Ryan actually testified before the House VA Subcommittee on Disability Assistance and Memorial Affairs earlier this week. On Wednesday, he was testifying on Capitol Hill. You know, it's, it's, it's another one of these things where we just need to get the right information out there. When the wrong information's out there, it's not helping anybody, and nobody wants that. The VA doesn't, doesn't want to be uh, putting out bad information. The, the VSOs certainly don't want people coming to them for something that they can't do. So we're going to see what we can do to help clear the air on that with Ryan Gallucci. And then in the 8 o'clock hour, we're scheduled to have James Spears. Now, James is a guy who you know, served in the Navy and then, for whatever reason, decided to create some Facebook groups Four Navy and military veterans that have become pretty successful. They have quite a few people involved in them. As I said earlier, six digits in membership in these groups. Now, taking a look at some of the military headlines out there, the new Secretary of the Army, it's an interesting story that we're seeing from the Army Times. Three weeks into the job, Mark Esper says he wants to change some things that are going to make some soldiers pretty, pretty happy, it looks like. He tells Military Times he wants people making fewer PCS moves and he wants to reduce the amount of mandatory training. Now, exactly what does that mean? Well, you can go and check out the story on Army Times to find out the details, but he's saying that there's some things like, oh, how about training like the code of conduct and the Geneva Conventions? Right now, it would appear that the Army is having classes to teach this training. And he says, hey, do you need to do it in a classroom? Or If you're out in the field and you have 30 minutes of downtime and eating MREs, can you just do it out there? Some interesting ways of looking at things. Maybe thinking a little bit out of the box, which is certainly a good thing. Uh, We're going to ask Jake exactly what he thinks about that. The Army looking at reducing the number of PCS moves, Jake, and also... Along with removing the number of PCS moves, they are also looking to reduce mandatory training by conducting it in different ways. So the example used in the Army Times story, one of the examples is uh, Geneva Conventions training, where apparently you're in garrison, as the Army puts it, and you go to class on that. And he, he, the new Army secretary says, hey, do we really need to sit in a classroom or can we do this when you have 30 minutes of downtime when you're out in the field doing a training exercise? Makes sense to me.
0: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense because that mandatory training and the death by PowerPoint takes up a lot of time. Like, it's also ineffective. Man. Oh yeah, very much so. Because we'll be, you know, we'll have to take time away from the mission, whatever we're doing, to get everyone in the company into this one building to sit there for forty-five minutes while they explain to us things that we pretty much already know. But so yeah, doing it like that is more expedient and it's more efficient. And uh, as far as reduced PCS moves, I am. Big in favor of that because in the army, in this pretty much I'm assuming it's most of the military too. You move every
1: like three years. At a minimum. I moved on average every like two year and a half, two years, essentially.
0: Yeah. In the army, it's usually around three or four years, depending on how long your enlistment is or something like that. It's complicated. Yeah. But uh so yeah, like I moved so many times. And the reasoning they always gave for that was that they wanted to spread the wealth of experience around. They didn't Mm. want someone to be in one unit for too long. Yeah. Which to me, it doesn't make a lot of sense because once you, if, if you're in an organization and you find your niche and you're really good at it, why would they want to get rid of an experienced soldier?
1: Yeah. Well, I see that argument, but here's another one. What if you're in a command, and I had an experience like this where uh, I, I PCS'd out to Guam, and I was at a command where I was miserable. I did not like it. Uh, they didn't particularly like me uh, because— I knew, as as having been in at that point 11 years when I got there, I knew what our job was supposed to be in my rate. And when I got there, found out that we were being used improperly. We were being used in ways that did not prepare my junior sailors for advancement. They were doing jobs that you wouldn't find anywhere on their test or anything like that. They were doing jobs that not only that – jobs that belonged to another rate that were on their test. So why are we doing their work when there were only, I don't know, 10 of us on board the ship and there were 150 of this other rate and it was, uh, you know, work that they didn't want to do. It was the boring part of their job. So it kind of got shifted down to us. If I had been there for like five years, I can't even tell you what would have happened. I mean, (laughs) I volunteered to go to Afghanistan to get away from that command. That's how bad it was there where I was like, yeah, I'd rather go to a war zone than be on this ship and deal with the little ridiculous battles that are going on here every day. Um, I I see the argument for if you have good unit cohesion, it could certainly increase that, but... On the other hand, if you have uh, you know, a bad unit, if you have a unit that has a bad leadership or has a bunch of troublemakers in it, and instead of being together and moving around every couple of years and uh, having the opportunity for, let's say, a young soldier, sailor, marine, airman, whoever. In this case, it's the Army we're talking about. So let's say there's a young soldier, you know, specialist maybe after a couple of years, who's in a command that's just kind of dysfunctional. They move to another command. It gives them the opportunity to see that, hey, this isn't what the Army is all about. If you assume that every command functions properly, then reducing PCS moves is fantastic.
0: Yeah, and I think that can be accomplished. Well, it depends. On certain posts, that can be accomplished without PCSing. You can move, like I know at Fort Hood, there are three major commands. Right. So you can move someone there and get them uh, the experience they need. And I agree with your point, but I think overall, it's a benefit for the Army to keep experience where it's needed. And let other and let units find out how they need to function, how yeah. to accomplish the mission.
1: How about this? This is something, but you know, maybe we'll talk to the Army Secretary. I don't know; they're they're kind of in the area, so it's a possibility. <laughs> um, how about the possibility of this? You you go to a command, and then it almost uh, has like uh, like something like what professional athletes have, where you have opt out clauses where. You go there and let's say you're going to be there five years is your contract to go there after two years or one year, you have the option to apply for uh, you know, and not through the command, because if it's an issue with the command that you're having that you want to get away from, you don't want them being the decision makers typically. But it, you could apply to big army and say, like, all right, I'd like to PCS someplace else where you could essentially request it when you wanted to for those people who might want to. You know, see more places, check out more duty stations, not be at Fort Hood, for example, for five plus years. What do you think that could work? That's a good idea, actually. That yeah. could
0: that, that could work and then, like I said, it would accomplish both goals that we're talking about. Yeah. But I think you I think you can always ask for a transfer through your branch manager
1: can you yeah in, in the Navy you well
0: you can, can request it but no, you can re- <laughs> <getting> what, it. <laughs> yeah you
1: can request it but it's not guaranteed that you're going to get it you can request anything you want I can request like hey could you guys make me a fleet Admiral and they'd be like no there you go well they allowed me to request it I you know I I think looking at it in that sort of professional athlete model where you, where you'll have people like you'll hear about a baseball player like like say on the Houston Astros George Springer who plays for the Astros went to University of Connecticut in my home state he you'll hear about a contract for him where it's like 7 years uh you know 100 million dollars or whatever but there are opt out clauses for the last couple of years there where if he's unhappy for whatever reason or if he's outperforming If he's outperforming that contract or underperforming it, there can be team options as well, uh, then he can be a free agent, essentially. He can decide or the team can decide that he's a free agent. I think that could be an interesting way for the the Army and the military in general to look at things like, hey, send people on five-year orders to someplace and give them – You know, a minimum time that they have to be there because you don't want everybody, you know, showing up to a bad command and a month later requesting a transfer and then you're going to be shorthanded. Make it like a a year, two year, probably two year minimum, I would say. And after that two years, then you can request a transfer um, or put in for a transfer or even be guaranteed a transfer at two years if you want it. You know, yeah,
0: because kind of there, there are times you can fence them. But to go with your baseball analogy, I, I'll bring up again with the Houston Astros, Craig Biggio, who was one of our best players, yeah. who spent his entire career, Hall of Famer, yeah, entire career on the Astros, and it was one of the best benefits to the team. So, yeah. like, I can give an example in the military. I had a, a command sergeant major one time that had spent his entire career in the cavalry, mm. his entire career, not necessarily in the third armored cavalry regiment, but he was in two units his entire career, the eleventh. ACR and the third
1: ACR. Yeah. That was it. There, there there, are benefits to that, but there's drawbacks to it. And just well, like yeah. anything, you know, yeah. like when I was up in Iceland, uh, there was a family there who, I mean, essentially just kind of went back and forth between commands in Iceland. And there were a lot of issues with what was going on with this. But you had uh, the father who was uh, an officer and the two sons who were enlisted all stationed at the same place. Um, at one point had the the father as the uh, officer in charge of a unit where the son worked. That's where I worked. And that led to uh, some issues that took place there. So y- you had that and it led to some issues where you had people like essentially treating a place as their little own fiefdom where they could control everything. And I think that could could be an issue there. And it, it makes me think of um, uh, another issue that I saw while I was in recruiting. We had a recruiter. Uh, in Florida, I worked in uh, North Florida, South Georgia. We had a recruiter. I, I get a phone call one night that we've had a recruiter murdered. Oh my gosh! Killed in his house during a home invasion. Here's what we find out eventually. And, and I was the public affairs officer for the district. So I got all the information. So I would be able to respond to the media when they came to us, which we were sure they would. They did not. So what ended up turning out to be the case is that this recruiter who was a reserve recruiter, which at the time in the Navy, meant that you stayed, you recruited out of your hometown, essentially. So you'd be on active duty recruiting people into the Navy reserves. And because you knew an area, like let's say you did this, you'd stay in Houston. And you could be there for as long as you for the rest of your career. If you became a reserve recruiter at, uh, you know, 10 years in, you could do 10 years recruiting in Houston. And they figure the reason for that, they would figure, you know, the area, you know, the people you're going to be successful in that area. This guy had been down in his area and had apparently built a drug empire while he was there as well. Oh. Yeah, it was like <laughs> the biggest he was the, the drug lord of this part of Florida and had young people working for him, which we always tried to figure out were these people he was trying to recruit and then couldn't and got them. We never actually figured out all the details on that. Some of the uh, the young people who were working for him figured out, well, this guy's in the Navy, and if he's making all this money selling all the drugs, where's he putting that money? Because if he's putting it into his bank accounts, the government's going to be like, well, where's all that coming from and ask a lot of questions. So they figured out, oh, he's keeping it in his house. He's got it with him. Let's go get it. They went into the house. They shot him. He shot, I believe he shot and killed one of them. Um, there are a couple others that uh, were facing life in prison. I think one of them maybe committed suicide while awaiting trial. Um, it never turned into a big media story, kind of shockingly to me, what, because the details were out there. If anybody went looking for him, I mean, I was able to find him, and it wasn't really through the the military. NCIS gave us some info on it, but you know, you... you You have that, too, where you have people staying in one place can fall into some bad routines. Now, I'm not saying he fell into anything. That was a choice that this sailor made. But, uh, you know, having people in the same place for longer than they are now, I don't know, man. I think there's a reason why they've kept it that way. It's it's to keep things fresh, to keep things from getting stale, to keep units from... uh, Becoming a fiefdom for somebody, particularly your senior enlisted and your senior officers. I mean, if you have a if you had the commanding officer of a unit, you will know, pick a unit, 10th Mountain, wherever there for a long time, they would get that unit running exactly how they wanted it. Over time, though, is that going to be exactly how it should operate or is it just going to be exactly how that one person wants it to operate? And then when the next one comes in, are they are things going to work out when you have someone comes in with a different idea of how things should be after they've been going that way for 10 years, five years, whatever it is? I don't know, man. There's, there's a lot of interesting questions there, but I think it's good to hear Secretary of the Army saying that he is – You know He's looking at it. He's trying to find some new things. His name is Mark Esper. He's only been on the job for three weeks at this point, but he's got some uh, some pretty interesting ideas. You can check out the details of that story over at Military Times. Uh, He talked to Megan Myers over there, and uh, yeah, pretty good story. There's a report, Jake, and this is, uh, well, it's always been a problem in the military. Of course, people joke around about it being primarily a problem in the Navy because filthy sailors traveling port-to-port. There's a report coming out that sexually transmitted diseases are on the rise in the oh, military. Oh, gosh. Becoming a, a bigger problem among people who are lower ranking. The Armed Forces health surveillance officials have put out this report. And again, this one comes to us from Military Times. So two Military Times stories filling us in today. Stars and Stripes first reported it, and it shows that the number of cases of chlamydia and gonorrhea increased Between 2014 and 2016, more sharply among women than men, 208,000-plus individuals contracted one of the two infections in the 10-year period ending in 2016. So 20,000 people a year between 2006 and 2016 being infected with either chlamydia or gonorrhea. Um, Women, as we said, more likely to contract those diseases, and then uh, people under 24 we're over 100% is like, like twice as likely essentially to uh, contract uh, those than the older troops. Um, yeah. I mean, this is uh, more than two thirds of the cases, according to military times involving chlamydia and gonorrhea tracked by researchers were from junior enlisted and officers. Really? Young people be dumb, and it yeah. doesn't matter whether they have shoulder boards or chevrons. It does not matter. Young people make dumb decisions. We know that. You know how we know that, Jake? How's that? We were them. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Just think back. Think back for us, you know, 20 years, whatever. For me, it's it's 20 years now. I'm 38 years old. 20 years ago, I joined the United States Navy. 2018 would actually be the year that I would retire had I still been in. And when I think back to when I was 18, 19, 20, 21, some of the things I did and decisions I made, not illegal. I wasn't breaking any laws, really, for the most part. I'm pretty (laughs) sure these statute of limitations has run out on anything that I did do that might have crossed those boundaries. But you think back to those years and it's like, oh, boy, how did I make it through?
0: Yeah, how, how did, did I survive? How did
1: twenty-year-old, nineteen, twenty-year-old, uh, you know, seaman and then petty officer Dame over in Keflavik, Iceland, partying every weekend out in Reykjavik, almost getting into a fight with a guy who apparently may have been a member of South Africa's rugby team, the Springboks. <laughs> I mean, like this is like this is the kind of stuff where uh, you just wonder how you make it through, and when you do make it through unscathed. It gives you an appreciation for it. And it, it lets, it, I think it allows you to understand like what's going on with these sailors where they're not making the best decisions. Sailor, sailors, soldiers, Marines, airmen. I mean, 200,000 cases of chlamydia and gonorrhea. Two of the grossest sounding yeah. STDs, I must say. Chlamydia. Gonorrhea. gonorrhea. That's the worst one. It's when the two of them combine like uh, Voltron. Yeah. and makes a, I don't know if that's a real thing. But yeah, so uh, interesting Purpose stuff. Syphilitis. Yeah, yeah. I think you, you you think that things like this are getting better. I actually did an interview for one of our uh, one of our sister stations here uh, in, in, the, in the Intercom radio cluster in Washington, D.C. I, I did an interview yesterday and it was focusing on the AIDS uh, epidemic. And it still is. People think AIDS is like a thing of the past, but it's still affecting quite a number of people. Things are getting better. And when things get better, one of the things we talked about during the interview, which you'll be able to hear on uh, Community Focus on WPGC, one of the things we talked about is that when things get better, people think, oh, it's not as big an issue. So we don't need to worry about it as much, talk about it as much, throw as much money at it. That's when you start seeing upticks again, when you keep that awareness down. Now in the military, I do remember, particularly when I first came in, a lot of talk about STDs. I remember the boot camp health class that was oh about God, STDs that and stuff. Thing. We had a guy, he was not in our division very long. He ended up going to oh man, I can't remember what they called the division, but there was a division that was essentially a um academic, like a remedial academic division. This guy in my boot camp division was uh, he, he couldn't read. We ended up figuring out and you know, it may shock you that how did this guy even get into the Navy? If he couldn't read, well, some recruiters are looking to pad their numbers anyway yeah. they can. He was, he was a sweet guy. Nice guy. Just didn't know how to read, uh, came from the country, like deep in the country, in the Southeast. I can't remember if he was Georgia or South Carolina, I think one of those two and asked a question where they were talking about different, different symptoms and he had no idea about any of this. He got up and asked a question and was like, is any of this stuff real? I've never heard of this stuff before. So there are people out there who at that point 20 years ago had never even heard of syphilis or gonorrhea or chlamydia and and going through that course and then later on having to go through trainings and stuff like that on STDs. I, as time went on, I don't remember as much of it. And it seems like things did get a lot better, you know? You were seeing fewer infections in the military but Yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's why the numbers are uh, going up a little bit again, because they've stopped some of that training. We've seen some issues in the military with training not being completed in my beloved Navy. We've had some ships crashing into each other, and the reports show that you know they're not doing exactly what they should. You wonder if uh, it's kind of the same thing applying to this uh, STD issue.
0: That's yeah, might be. And I mean, I always had advice for truth, but I can't say it on the radio.
1: Yeah, it's well, a little offensive. <laughs> if you'd like to hear that from you, you can tweet at Jake the Army Guy and yeah, ask him what you, was that advice that you would give. Now, coming up later on in the show, Jake, we are scheduled to have James Spears, who has started several Facebook groups for the military. You a member of any sort of like military-themed Facebook groups, uh, any a couple. army-ish ones? Yeah. Yeah. Those can be pretty good places, and good places to uh, keep in touch, find some people that you may not have otherwise found. Like uh, my first ship, the USS Saipan, I joined the Facebook group for that ship and got back in touch with people I hadn't seen since 2000, geez, 2001, 2002. Long time. So those things are pretty cool. We're going to talk to him about why he got involved in that and what has been the benefit for him. Before that, though, the VFW's Ryan Gallucci is going to clear some stuff up in regards to a recent email that many veterans received from the Department of Veterans Affairs. You're going to want to hear that. It's the morning briefing. Eric Dame, JQ's ConnectingVets.com. Stick around. Back in a moment. It's Friday, December 15th, 2017. I am your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer and ConnectingVets.com is your website. Created by veterans for veterans and connecting veterans every day. Listen, if you're not checking out the website at least once a day, you, my friend, you'd be messing up just a little bit. <laughs> also follow us on social media where we are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and a YouTube channel. That's where you're going to be kept up to date on the latest and greatest items that we have going on over there. And I highly recommend you do that because one click in your mouse or tap on your phone can change your life for the better. And that's what we want. We want veterans living their best post-military life. So just go there. Remember, at Connecting vets Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. Those are the places to go for the stories that you need. We welcome back to the studio right now, Mr. Jake. Jake, how are you this morning? I'm doing good, Eric. How are you? I'm doing all right. Uh, for those who are expecting us to speak to our eight o'clock <laughs> guest, it appears that there's been some issue that's come up. We're not exactly sure what it is, but that's okay because as veterans, Jake, 13 years in the Army, me, 13 years in the Navy, we have uh, many years of experience of adapting and overcoming and also of kind of, uh, you know, nonsensing our way through things yep. when we need to. make it till you make it. Did you ever have to give a training where you were like, I don't really know what this is, where they'd be like last minute, like, Hughes, over here all right, uh, you, you teach these guys about how to uh, properly handle a fire extinguisher. You'd be like, uh, it's okay. Yeah, no, that's a, it's, a very, it's a
0: very important skill of being able to read the four quick little instructions and extend it to 30 minutes. Here's the thing. With personal instruction, the way you do it is everyone has to come up and pretend with the fire extinguisher
1: to spray it. That's how you, you yeah. pad out the time. And you show, you'd be like, or you can start off like, you show me how you would do it. Let them come up and they're like, ah, that is correct. There are two ways of doing that. One is to just kind of, you know, throw out a little nonsense as you go through. As you said, maybe take a moment to look serious and pensive when actually what you're doing is reading the instructions on that fire extinguisher. The other way is to use that as the teaching tool, and that can make you look more professional. When we are looking at a piece of equipment, my young sailors, how do we know how to use it? Anybody? Anybody? Somebody will raise their hand, you know. Uh, Seaman Jackson will be like, oh, a Petty Officer, the the way that you read the instructions. Ah, yes, Petty Officer Jackson. So let's do that. And then you read through the instructions. <laughs> and they think that that's just your teaching style when in actuality you had no idea what was on those four steps. I mean, in the Navy we did because everybody has to go through damage control training because – When you're on a ship out in the middle of the ocean, if a fire breaks out, uh, you're not calling the base fire department. You are the fire department. So you have to learn about all those things, which is why... Uh, I've I've amazed some firemen friends of mine who didn't know that in the Navy everybody fights fires by my knowledge of different uh, extinguishing agents and what they can and can't do uh, AFFF, PKP all those different, I can use those types of terms and know what I'm talking about and I wasn't even a particularly good firefighter in the Navy, I was <laughs> mediocre at best and always kind of waited till the last minute to do any of the training that I had to do, uh, you know that's just the way that I did it, so uh, the website as we were talking about, we're looking at our top five right now. The story on Dan Crenshaw, who's running for Congress down in your neck of the woods, Houston, that's not even the big story, honestly. The fact that Dan Dan Crenshaw is running for Congress, that's very cool. And he would be, I believe, the third Navy SEAL to be elected to Congress and currently serve in Congress if he gets elected. He's got a lot of steps to go through. He's, he's running for the primary right now, the Republican primary. The cool part of the story is Dan Crenshaw by many people's assumptions, shouldn't be here today. Dan Crenshaw, by almost everyone's assumptions, including the doctors who were working on him, shouldn't be able to see today. Dan Crenshaw is doing both. He lost his right eye and then his left eye. Essentially, they said, like, hey, if we do this very risky surgery, you may come out of the surgery and be blind if it doesn't work perfectly. And it's like, uh, it, it, it's not a great chance that it's going to work perfectly. So chances are, you'll go blind immediately if we do this surgery, and and with the the retina and everything or whatever, and it, it doesn't take. The other option is we don't do the surgery, and your your vision, which is not great now, will gradually get worse until you're blind. As he told us right here on the morning briefing this Monday. Right in the chair that Jake's sitting in right now, he told me, not even a question. Do the surgery. If I have a chance to see properly out of this eye or close to properly, I want that. If I'm going to go blind eventually or go blind today, same end result. Let's rip that Band-Aid off the wound, essentially. What the doctor termed a miracle occurred, and the surgery went without a hitch, totally perfectly. He has that vision in his left eye. Now he's got his eye on that seat in Congress. Really a fantastic, amazing story. Um, although as I asked him, like, why would he want to go from one of the most adored segments of the military, (laughs) the most well-respected to Congress where everybody's like, oh, Congress, just nothing but lizards and snakes. That's all that's in there. You know, he gave us his reasons and he believes in continuing to serve. What was fascinating about him too, Jake, was that he continued serving after almost losing his life and losing his eye easily could have said like, well, I'm, I'm done, man. I'm going to get out and I'm going to – he could be a motivational speaker or so many other things and cash in on, on his amazing story. Instead, he stayed for like two more years as a SEAL and deployed two more times, not in combat operations due to his uh, eyesight limitations, but uh, running things. I mean, he was an officer. He was a lieutenant commander when he retired. So uh, this is a guy – he wanted to keep going. He eventually was medically retired. When he got out, wanted to keep serving. And again, could have rested on his laurels. His story? Tell me that's not a movie. Yeah. Tell me that's not a, a, a big movie starring some sort of, who I don't know, who would you see in the Dan Crenshaw role? I'm trying to think. Uh, hmm. Maybe the guy, well, maybe because he did this, maybe not him, but what's his name? Jeremy Renner from The Hurt Locker. I think he yeah. could do a pretty good job of it.
0: That or maybe
1: Chris Pratt or Bradley Cooper. Bradley Cooper just played Chris Kyle, so I don't think you go that. I think you have to stay away from that. Chris Pratt, yes. I think that is a very, very good call. I think you just cast the Dan Crenshaw story. (laughs) Um, So if you go to our site, it's the top story on there right now. You will see uh, a picture that I took where I bugged him. I was like, hey, man, typically Dan Crenshaw, when you see him, he was on Fox News uh, a day or two after he was on with us, and he has an eye patch on. That's kind of his... uh, That's what, that's how you see him. That's how he is on his website. That's how everything he came in here and he didn't have the eye patch on. He wasn't trying to cover up the eye and has a glass eye that has the Navy seal trident inside of it. That was so awesome. (laughs) I bugged him. I was like, I I know this is probably going to bug you, but I need to take this picture. <laughs> I need to take a picture close up of your eye, and I'm going to put it in the story. And he was like, "All right, man, whatever you whatever you want to do." So we did it. You can see it. It's right there. Um, listen, an impressive guy. Uh, he's running against a, a lot of people who uh, have a lot of support behind them as well, and he's also running with a lot less money than a lot of people.
0: are. Yeah, aren't. that's my worry about him. Is he doesn't have the money to really compete?
1: Well, that's what uh, that's what a lot of military you know, veterans have to deal with when they're running for a political office there. He's running against uh, down in Houston. It's, it's the energy capital of the nation, essentially, you know, a lot of oil down there, all that stuff. Um, there are CEOs of those companies, some of those companies down there that are running for the uh, Republican nomination. I think only one other person who's running for it out of like six or seven from what I read has any political experience. Um, Dan is, is in the majority there where he doesn't really have the political experience, though he is a Kennedy School of Government graduate at Harvard. He knows what he's talking about when it right. comes to it. But, you know, I think when you talk to him, the feeling that I got is that he'd rather not, but he's kind of, you know, he's his service and everything, that's kind of putting him in the door. What he was able to do there is going to make people aware of him. But now he's got to let them know. Not what he did, but what he's going to do when he's in office. So it's a uh, it's a fantastic uh, a story, his story of his life and his career. We also talked to him about politics just a little bit and, again, why he would go into Congress after serving on SEAL Team 3. Uh, he had some pretty good answers for that, so I recommend you go check that out. Let's see some other issues that we have going on. AMVETS Executive Director Joe Schinelli. Clearing up some issues with the GI Bill. Recently separated veterans, as Joe told us on this show right here yesterday. You know, there was some uh, communication going out from the VA to newly separated veterans about the Forever GI Bill that just wasn't quite right and was causing some confusion. Making them some of them think they weren't even eligible for the Rev- Forever GI Bill. Joe cleared that up right here on the show and there's a story on it there. We've also got if you're receiving a VA pension and need a caregiver... Well, there's some information that you need to know, and it's going to be right there at Connecting Vets. Also, the Pentagon getting a step closer to getting what we're calling an insane amount of cash. For me, that's like anything over fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, an me insane too. Insane amount, but we're talking billions, hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, it's it's insane, uh, but not necessarily in a bad way. I mean. We've talked about the National Defense Authorization Act, which the president signed very recently. There were some questions on the cost of it, where that where that money is going to come from and everything. Uh, but, yeah, we've got a great story on that on the website. You can also find some of our older work on there that's still very relevant, like John Burke. Who I've been seeing him pop up all over the place on Facebook recently. You know, he's got a lot of uh, opinions on things, and he likes expressing them, as many veterans do. We interviewed John a few months ago about you know, him building that social media empire, his work with John Cena on the American Grit reality show, you know, and uh, how he's basically not worried about what he calls vet flakes. Yeah, that was a great line. That was, there are some people who commented on our story on Facebook who were like, oh, we have vet flakes, huh? Well, he's the vet flake because when people talk to him, he blah, 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 blah. that's the thing about John. He's a controversial figure. And in this day and age, that can be a career in and of itself. All right. He doesn't care. He'll just say whatever he wants. He will, and he, he's also, you know, he's hes hes a guy who gets out there, you know, he puts his opinion out, and he says what he thinks, says what he wants, does his thing, and that's fantastic. That's great. Every veteran, no matter what their opinion is, whether I agree with them or not, I like them expressing those opinions and kind of showing also the variety as well of like, listen, we're not all the same. We're not all John Burke. We're not all Chris Goldsmith from High Ground Veterans Advocacy. We're not all JQs. We're not all Eric Dame. We're, we're different people. We have different, varied opinions, getting them out there is fantastic. But then when you start looking deeper into John and what he does, he does a lot of really good work with veterans, charities and organizations and kind of lending his following and his voice to them. And it's great to see that, that along with he's not just the, uh, anti vet flake guy. He's not just the military member, uh, spouting off his opinions, whether you like him or not. He's also doing good things for vets and for other people out there. And that's, one of those things that I really just enjoy always shining the light on when uh, you, know, you sometimes find out a little bit more about people that you didn't know. And we enjoy doing that on this show. All right. So here we go. There's a new rule in the Army, Jake. And I want to get your opinion on this. This is being reported by Army Times. New Army rule automatically sends qualified specialists and sergeants to promotion board. Mm. You used to have to get a recommendation for promotion from your command, right? Yep. What was that like? Was there like an application process, or or was it just you know they decided yes, no, and you had nothing to do with the process? What was the recommendation process like in the
0: army? The way it went was your first line supervisor would at some point tell your platoon sergeant that you that they thought this soldier was uh, qualified to go to the board, and then they'd send them. But I mean, now with uh, to send them automatically, I don't know because there are some people out there like that you can be really good at mem- see but people I had to explain the military army promotion board what it is yeah, I don't know anything yeah, about it the promotion board uh for to go to E5 or E6 is you sit in front of a board and this is all the first sergeants in your company and your command sergeant major okay and they just grill you on military knowledge and they're judging everything, You're re- not just your responses, they're judging how you carry yourself, how you handle stress, how you react to oddball questions and things like that, your military bearing and all that. The problem with that and the issue I've raised a couple times when I was in the Army was that a person can be good at memorizing information but be crap at their jobs. Because when I went to the promotion board as a 19 kilo, I was a tanker. I got asked a grand total of one question about operations on a tank. Everything else was about, you know, first aid, military history, current events, things like that. And I'm thinking, well, wait, not one of you has seen me work in the motor pool. For all you know, I don't even know how to change a track pad, let alone how to shoot the main gun on an M1 Abrams. Yeah. So, and I I brought that up a couple of times. It's like, what's the point of this board? I mean... I'm happy that I got promoted as much as I did. Yeah, That's, I'm not going to complain about that. But I honestly think that the other services have it better because in the Navy, you have to take a test, right?
1: Yeah, so twice a year, everybody who's eligible after time and rate, essentially, you have to serve for a specific time in each rank. Uh, it gets longer as you get older. But then uh, twice a year, essentially, you will take the uh, the promotion test. And it's, it's a test where up through E6, that's all it is. You're just graded on that. Um, your evals do come into play in the final calculation. There's there's uh, an equation, essentially, that includes your evaluation score, which is anywhere from a 0.0 to a 4.0, um, uh, 5.0, actually, I believe, which is like the EP, early promote is what it's called. Uh, so that means essentially you're like one in the top whatever percentage of sailors each command has a specific percentage they can give of each category, um, you know. So you can get a uh, you can get your your eval and then score well on the test. If you get an average eval and score great on the test, you're getting promoted. If you have a great eval and score okay on the test, you're probably getting promoted as well. There's an equation that goes into right. it, and it's that way up through E6, and then it changes for chief where. You take the test first, you have to be uh, promotion eligible, you take the the Chiefs test, then you get, uh, by the test, it means you're board eligible. So you have to score over a certain point to be board eligible, and your evals don't come into, into play at all up to that point. So you need to score, like, let's say the cutoff is uh, 85 out of 100. If you have an 85 or above, you're board eligible. That means you have to submit a package with essentially everything that you think they should know about you. All of your accomplishments, your achievements, your evals, and everything like that. That goes to Millington, Tennessee, where a board who knows probably nothing about you, a board of chiefs, senior chief, and master chief petty officers, come to this uh, selection board. They go through by rate, All of the people and look at their their package that is sent in and essentially grade them and rank them. And then there's a number, a quota, essentially, of how many people. So from my rate, since we were small, it would typically be like, you know, I don't know, 30 percent, 20 percent, 10 percent promotion towards the end of my career. Earlier on, at one point, it was 100 percent. Early, Like when I made first class, if I had been up for chief at that point, I would have made chief because 100% of people who made board put on chief. So if they have seven openings and 10 people, then seven of those 10 are going to get in. They have to choose which seven and it's done. What I liked about that is that no one would have too much favoritism because this is a board of chiefs from all different rates. Uh, One of them would be your rate and they wouldn't know you. So they wouldn't be able to say like, oh, well, I like him. I don't like him. That was a positive um, the negative would be the same thing. They don't know you. They don't know that. All right, you know, I I may have had you know, like Frank Cable, my set, my last ship, that command. I didn't get particularly good evals. I got like promotable evals, which for a first class, that's not good. You're supposed to be a must promoter an early promote. Um, part of the reason for that was the department that my uh, that my shop was in. I was competing against people who were mission essential, and I was thought of as not mission essential. That dropped me down a level right there. Also, they didn't again. They didn't like that I knew what we were supposed to be doing and pointed that out a lot. Um, that that could be a problem where if somebody nobody on that board knows me, they'll be like, oh look at this guy, he's kind of a dirtbag, a 3.0 as a first class, running a shop as an LPO, just must be a bad leader or bad this or bad that, whereas somebody else who's at a small command, like when I was over at uh, Suda Bay, greet, we had a small command there at the uh, the AFN station, and there, were, there was only one EP allowed for first classes, and I got furious at my chief uh, the last time I was there because I was eligible for promotion to chief, he gave the EP to a guy, a first class, who was about to retire. He was at tw- high year tenure, 20 years. He gave it to him, not because he was a good worker, because he absolutely wasn't, but he felt bad for him because it was his last chance to make chief. Had I gotten that EP at that command, I probably would have made chief that year probably would have made chief not guaranteed but probably would have made it yeah. this other guy had zero chance cuz he had bad evals throughout it just it, it was not it was not fair it was not right but that's the way that things can happen so then if me and him are both up up for uh, board eligibility we both pass the test He's got the 5.0. I've got the 4.0. He's going to get it. I'm not. You know, right. it comes and down it, to that.
0: It works basically the same way for uh, Army E-7s to make Sergeant First Class. You go to what's called a centralized board, yeah. which means you send all your uh, your Evals, your uh, ERB, which is your Enlisted Record Brief, and a good photo of you in your uniform, and send it all up, and they look at your Evals. Right. And so that's why that's the way I think decentralized boards should work. Is that because like I said, they don't—they don't know if you know your job or not, because the questions are generalized. Like I, when I was in Iraq, we had a, a promotion board. I sent one of my soldiers to, and part of the test was he had to give the sergeant major an IV during oh, the
1: board. Yeah, so combat lifesaver. Yeah, stuff. exactly. Yeah. And,
0: and I understand that, but at the same time, it's like, what does that have to do with leading soldiers in combat? What does it right. have to do with properly maintaining the equipment on a tank?
1: Yeah. And, you know, we had the issue with – so a Navy test, which would be a certain number of questions, like 200 questions, and 100 would be general Navy knowledge. 100 would be your rating knowledge. And that's why, you know, at that command where I talked about how I would bring up the fact that, hey, guys, this is what we're supposed to be doing. This is what's on the test. If we're not doing that job, then we're not preparing them for the test. We'd have training classes, you know, twice a week. I had to lead training. And that's great, but if you're not actually doing it, you're just learning it from a book and a presentation, good luck on that test. you know. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things. And then in the Navy, you have, of course, after you make chief, that's, that's the biggest transition in the entire military as far as promotions go, with the exception of maybe going from uh, captain or colonel uh, to general or admiral, essentially. Chiefs in the Navy wear different uniforms. They have access to their own uh, facilities, even on board a ship. They have the chief's mess. They have different food. It, it, it's it's a cultural change. It's a huge deal. And after that point, honestly, 13 years in the Navy, keep this in mind, I have no freaking clue how they get promoted from chief to senior chief or senior chief to master chief. I mean, I could guess I could say like it's probably some sort of coffee drinking contest or
0: like, you know, all these all these
1: different things. I have no idea how someone goes from chief to senior chief or master chief. I don't know if it's similar to what the, the earlier rates go through. I don't know what the decision is. I should probably reach out. I have some friends like my, uh, my buddy, Corey, who is one of my uh, groomsmen, he put on senior chief recently and he'll probably be a master chief before you know it. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't know. When it gets up to that level, I'm sure you think about it when you're up there. But I was like, I oh. Yeah, they just they just have meetings in the chiefs mess, and like they have boxing matches, and whoever wins becomes a master chief. Yeah. So I'm
0: like, I don't know. Yeah, I know the army has for E8 for first sergeant slash master sergeant. That's when they have there is another promotion board or, yeah. or another centralized board. I think to go the same from thing. from first sergeant to sergeant major. I don't know. I maybe there's a board. I have no idea.
1: Yeah. It's a fight to the death kumite, yeah. basically. <laughs> it's like, you know that Jean Claude Van Damme movie? Was it Bloodsport where he goes to the Kumite and fights in the tournament? They just have one of those with yeah. all the senior chiefs in a specific rate come together and the ones that survive put on Master Chief. That's how it goes. <laughs> that's
0: why you never see a fat first sergeant.
1: I wish I could say the same about the senior <laughs> chiefs and Master Chiefs, but that's <laughs> maybe there that was a sumo match. Well, there was like there was a senior chief I worked with, um, who we didn't get along. <laughs> he tried to uh he tried to basically uh take my job and bring me so that I was working under him to I think it was to make his chances of making Master Chief better, and he was in horrible shape. Well, he was in, in a good shape, like like round, like a bowling yeah. ball. He, he looked like a bowling ball with feet. And uh, you know, you, you wondered about that, but again, that was one of those khaki things as we call it in the Navy, the khaki mafia. He never seemed to have a problem with the physical readiness test. I never saw him run anywhere, get on an exercise bike. He made it through. That's one of those things that they're starting to uh, to push that out. Some of the recent yeah. master chief petty officers in the navy have been like, "Hey, the things, the way we used to do things doesn't work in today's navy. Yeah, we got to keep doing things uh, on the uh, straight and narrow." Essentially.
0: Yeah, the the good old boy club can't continue. No, it it's did demoralizing. For a, it
1: did for a long time, and in some ways, it was beneficial. In some ways, it wasn't. Um, but recently, you saw like that guy. You know, unfortunately, uh, he did pass away shortly after his retirement. I just lived a horribly unhealthy lifestyle. And then when he wasn't working and having to come in, he got even worse. So, you know, stuff like that does happen, but, um, promotions an interesting thing. And again, this, this new army secretary, man, I kind of want to talk to him now because he is putting some interesting stuff three weeks in on the job and he's making big changes, man. It's been like, how long has the army promotion process been like that?
0: Uh, Oh, longer than I've been in longer than (laughs) I was in. So at least 15, 20
1: years, Yeah, I mean, just again, just three weeks into the job, he's looking at changing the promotion process. He put this into into place, and then he's also got these changes that we talked about earlier on limiting PCS moves and things like that. I mean, this is a guy who clearly had some ideas when he was coming in there. He was nominated for the position like four months ago and just got sworn in three weeks ago. Wow. Don't like that don't like why did it take four weeks i mean where four months why was it a four month process to get this man in to that important office and he's obviously he had a plan i guess that's a good thing he was nominated four months ago he had plenty of time (laughs) plenty of time to work on his plans and when he got into office it was already but our secretary of the army mark esper Got some interesting ideas. I don't know if everybody's going to love them, but some people certainly are going to like them. And hopefully you like this show and hopefully you come back next Monday. We are going to have a great week next week, including the director of Tricare. He's going to be on the show with us live talking about the changes coming up and so much more. Hey, have a great and safe weekend. We'll see you Monday.